Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here in the studio with my delightful co-host, the inimitable Carrie Plitt, who I love to flatter and make her feel uncomfortable at the top of the show. Hi, Carrie. How are you? I'm feeling very flattered. A little flushed with (laughs) praise. Take it. Is that a way to say No. (laughs) Are you blushing? I am blushing. I don't know. You're embarrassing me. No, I'm great. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. I'm actually still riding high off a really lovely thing that happened to me a couple of weeks ago when I was out for dinner at a great restaurant in Borough Market in London called Floor. I'm going to give them a shout out if you're ever down there. Go. The food is divine. Um, And at the end of the meal, the maitre d' gave me a complimentary creme brulee and said it was to say thank you for making such a great podcast. And I felt so famous. And uh, yeah, it was, I blushed. It was lovely though. It was like a lovely, lovely experience. I'm worried it will go to my head and I'll become a monster. You are becoming a monster. I am, also, this is clearly just a plea for more creme brulee. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> if you see me around town and you want to give me a creme if brulee. If you want to shout out on our podcast, all you need to do is give Octavia desserts and she'll talk about it for weeks. I mean, it's absolutely true. <laughs> No, it's really wonderful, and I'm glad that happened to you. Not at all I jealous. I was just jealous that you weren't there. <laughs> I would, I would share my creme brulee with you had you been there. I dedicated it to you. Thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> oh, Welcome to our show. <laughs> Whether you're new to the show, maybe you found us through the shout out in the New York Times morning briefing. Just a little throw out of. An exciting thing that I mean, basically to us. we're starting the yeah, show with bragging, bragging today. Yeah, everyone, bragging. sorry, please bear with us. Or if you're an old hand, welcome and thanks for listening. The format for these mini sods between full shows is for the next half hour ish, we're going to have an informal conversation about something book related and anything else that might come up, and then we will recommend some other cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes by Eddie. That's right. Also, if you're new and like the show and would like to help us make it even bigger and better, we've still got a few lovely, sturdy, excellent tote bags left in our Etsy shop. And you can find the link in the description of this podcast. All the money we raise from them goes back into helping us cover our running costs. So if you buy one, thank you for your support. We are very grateful. We are very grateful. And we are so impressed by how far away people are who are still ordering totes. I mean, in Australia and lots in the US, some in Europe. I mean, it's just been fantastic, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful. We got a tweet from someone today saying that they'd spotted one in Redfern in Sydney, just on the street, which is thrilling. Very exciting. More bragging. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Anyway. This is this is what I was like really wanted to avoid when I started doing a podcast. And now I'm just doing, you know, when they have those the long rambly. Yes. I think the thing is, it's something that happens in like a dark room far away from the world. So when there are moments of recognition, it feels really nice to share them. Yeah. But yeah, maybe it's dreadful to listen Bear to. Bear with us. Te- you can write in and tell us to shut up. Oh, yeah. We are. Please. We're open I to mean, that. I mean, like maybe be a Within little bit reason. nicer than that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the mini-sode, which is inspired by Brexit, but not about Brexit, right? That's right. This mini-sode is a celebration of the European literature and culture that we've loved and stuff that we want to read and the power of reading to create and maintain connections where politics has failed us because we kind of couldn't let this happen and not bring it into the you know conversations that we're having. So I guess it's Brexit, but make it optimistic. <laughs> sure. I mean, let's we'll try. We'll try. We will try for yeah. the next half hour ish. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Pigador, who this year are publishing some great new work 
from already beloved authors that we want to tell you about. That's right. We talked on the last show a little bit about how there's often a lot of focus in the publishing industry on debut authors. But there's a different kind of excitement that comes when an author whose work you already know you love publishes something new. Why do you think it feels different, Carrie? Well, I guess the obvious answer is that there's less risk that you won't enjoy it if you already know that you love a person's work. But I also think there's a real pleasure to be taken in seeing how a writer's perspective and interests evolve through their career as they mature and also maybe are granted more freedom by the industry. Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes writers can take more risks three books in than they could at the start of their careers, right? Um, Picard will have some great new work coming from already beloved authors this year, including Garth Greenwell, whose latest novel actually Emma McBride recommended um, on our last show, totally unrelatedly. Yeah. So his his previous book, What Belongs to You, was a 2016 novel about sexual obsession, and it was declared an instant classic by the New York Times Book Review. And his new novel, which is coming this April, is called Cleanness. And He returns actually to the same characters and the same setting of what belongs to you, exploring queer desire and seduction and what it means to seek connection. So you do get to literally return to the world of his previous book, which is an amazing opportunity if you've loved a bunch of characters and felt bereft when the book ended. Pictor are also publishing a new book from Megan Hunter, whose 2017 novel, The End We Start From, explored the theme of motherhood through a story about a woman and her child in a country submerged by floodwaters after environmental disaster. And I believe I recommended it on on Literary Friction. In June, Pictor published The Harpy, in which Hunter turns to exploring the theme of marriage. When a woman's husband has an affair, the couple agree that she can even the score by hurting him three times. Like Hunter's previous work, it is dark and otherworldly and beautifully written as well as deeply compelling. Hello, welcome back to Literary Friction, Minisode 11. Carrie and I are back, ready to get into the world of European literature, culture, croissants, pinchos, pierogi, burrata, sauerkraut, taramasalata. I don't know what's happened to me. I'm just listing delicious European food. However you feel about Brexit, and besides the fact that the portmanteau is now forever ruined, there's no denying that it's going to change the relationship that people in the UK have with the European Union and the 27 countries that make it up. I'm a languages student, and so I was lucky enough to be able to make really full use of the freedom of movement that being a European citizen allowed for. Um, And because of that, I lived and worked in Madrid and in Paris. And, you know, of course, I'm speaking from a position of a lot of structural privilege, having been able to do that and being able to move free between these countries. But it's also stuff that, as a result, is really close to my heart. And, And the result of Brexit, for me, felt like I'd had part of my identity removed without my permission. But we're not here to dwell in the misery of all that, just a bit of context. One of the most beautiful things about literature is, of course, that unless things get fully fascistic and book funny, no political machine can restrict your movement in your imagination, right? Totally. So, Carrie, have you read much European literature? And do you remember what your first introduction to literature from Europe was? Like what book it was? How old were you? What does it mean? Tell me things. Well, yes, I have a slightly different relationship to Europe, obviously. I'm from the US. I am still a US citizen. I'm not a British citizen. And so I I moved here 10 years ago. I've been living in the UK for a long time. But I never had that freedom of movement that you had. And I never really identified as a European and, and still don't. So it's a very different thing for me, even though it has an emotional resonance. It's slightly at a remove. 
but saying that, I mean, I grew up totally obsessed by the idea of Europe. I was, I think this is true of America in general. It's always had a bit of an inferiority complex and Americans have been obsessed with, with their idea of Europe for a long time. And that was certainly true of me as a sort of privileged middle-class cultural child. You know, I loved all things European and I thought being European was cool and they had better food and they wrote sophisticated books and did cool movies that had sex in them. You know, it was, it was, I, 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 and I'm sure that's one of the reasons why I eventually ended up moving here was that early obsession. In terms of how I thought about Europe, I think I kind of lumped the UK into a wider idea of continental Europe. I mean, obviously my exposure to European things was much more British heavy because of the lack of a language barrier and because of my uh, absolute failure to actually learn any languages despite studying both Spanish and French. But yeah, I mean, I loved British fantasy writers like Inesbet, Edward Eager. I grew up, of course, reading Harry Potter. In terms of non-British things, I was trying to think about this. And I, I mean, I'm so embarrassed to say that I'm kind of drawing a blank, maybe because there's not a lot of translated children's literature um at first I was like oh Madeline and then I realized that's an American (laughs) picture book about girls growing up in Paris that I assumed was French until yesterday when I I was looking it up yeah but I mean I think so did I it's by an American author oh my god I know very upsetting so obviously not a true portrait of France (laughs) which is a real (laughs) blow for me (laughs) but you know definitely Le Petit Prince I remember reading when I was younger and then I, I would say my first like real exposure to my idea of being European and how like exciting and sexy that must be was reading The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera when I was a teenager, which I'm interested to know what I would think of that book when I went back to it now. But I remember reading it as a teenager and being like, oh, my God, like Europe is so cool. Like it's about sex and they're like just like blending like surrealism into realism. And like, you know, it's so it's so cultured and amazing. And I'm sure that's where the obsession started. How about you? Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's funny because. I wondered if it would be quite different for each of us, of course, right? Um, obviously, when I was growing up, Britain was in the EU. Like I said before, I was a, I identified as a European. Um, and the schools I went to, you had to pick at least one foreign language. And it was always a European language in those days. So it was the choice was between French, German. And then later, you might be able to take up Spanish or Italian, depending um, you know, on the resources. But yeah, there used to be a lot more emphasis on learning other languages than there is now um but that's kind of a a whole other thing but what you were saying about yeah the idea of european culture and europe as this like sexy sophisticated place i totally had that too even as a little girl i'd internalized a lot of actually like not really not very okay snobbery about my own nation and england and i didn't want to be english i wanted to be french or i wanted to be spanish um and I wanted to identify with this like hallowed European part of my identity. And I think, you know, if we really got into the nitty gritty of why, probably not some 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 kind of complex social shit would come up, you know, but we're not we're not gonna do that right now. I'm gonna take that to therapy. <laughs> <This is> not, <laughs> yeah. We have to not just talk about our childhoods exactly. all the time on the mini <laughs> What else is Which there, Carrie? Sometimes do. What else is there? Um but no, the first European literature I read was probably the fairy tales, you know. Know, like Hansel and Gretel by the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen's stories. He, he wrote The Emperor's New Clothes, um, The Tinderbox, which 
holy shit, I had a, an illustrated version of this with these incredible drawings of the three dogs. One of them has eyes as big as teacups. One of them has eyes as big as mill wheels. And finally, the most terrible dog, which has eyes as big as the round tower. And they spin around in his face like wheels. And it's this incredibly like wild, frightening imagery that was seared onto my soul. But he also wrote Thumbelina and the Little Mermaid. So a couple of heroines that I, I kind of got carried away with when I was little. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that the Europe that came to me in my childhood was very, very different from the kind of cigarette smoking, sex and philosophy Europe that came through reading things in my teenage years that, you, you know, like you describe. Um, and there was a more like sort of weird gonzo spirit to these cartoons as well like Asterix but anyway we'll come back to that I was just thinking the next question I wanted to ask you was are there any European countries that reading about inspired you to visit or that you want to go to because you've read about them yeah I would say contrary to what you might think I th it was France you know I thought I was a francophile I mean I guess I still kind of am but I, I definitely became obsessed with French culture when I was in kind of late high school college age I switched from learning Spanish to French which again meant that I learned neither I, I studied French painters in college I was obsessed with like Manet and Courbet and all of those people I read Proust um, the first volume <laughs> in the English translation um, and, and watched like Jean-Luc Godard films and, and and was like these are my people this is where I want to go and this all was, I, I may have talked about this before because it was a very formative experience for me, but it was all completely deflated when I spent a summer in Paris and it became clear that I loved France, but France did not love me back. Oh, babe. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very difficult. I got a facial infection, which I don't think was France's fault, but it was like weird. And I, my boyfriend came to visit. I broke up with him. I was incredibly lonely. Yeah, it was just terrible. And and after that summer, actually, that's when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to move to France. I <laughs> <laughs> There's a thing called Paris syndrome where tourists come to Paris and it's not what they expected. And I identify with that. You know, I think France is such an idea in, in our world's culture that sometimes these ideas about Europe can be can be detrimental to your own experience. Yeah, well, they become like fetishes, don't they? Yeah, totally. Um, I totally had that. I mean, with France, a bit lesser because I spent a lot of time there as a child and so... I was experiencing it in real time alongside my absorption of these kind of fantasies. But I'm not saying I didn't have it at all. You know, I certainly, certainly did. And when I was living and working there, I was very disappointed to realize that liberté, égalité, fraternité was kind of bullshit because it's a very repressed society. And, you know, that was disappointing. But for me, I think the one, the one that is equivalent to your sort of Paris experience was Spain because I really came to me in my teens through actually a lot of film, Al Almodovar's mm. films of the 80s. And, and I read a lot of Lorca's poetry and found this kind of, this idea that Spain was going to be some kind of queer anti-fascist utopia full of like wonderful surreal vignettes and glorious colours. And, you know, there was definitely an exoticism happening there and a fetishization of, of difference and otherness, which, of course, I really didn't understand the implications of when I was a teenager who was just like, wow, that place looks fun and different. And oh, my God, no one's wearing tweed. Get me there now. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, when I when I got there, obviously, no, you know, there are elements of that in the culture there. But of course, 
course, it's a completely mixed up, complex national culture that, you know, is welcoming sometimes and alienating other times. And I think that's part of it, too, isn't it? Like when you experience a culture through a book or a, no- or a book or a movie, it doesn't have to be multifaceted. It can just be this fantasy for you. That's the whole point of it. So the reality of a place is going to always be because you're also in the mix, right? Totally. Like you're, yeah. It's reacting to you as you're reacting to it. Yeah, I think it was actually really important that I wasn't an Anglophile when I moved to the UK because I didn't have those kinds of expectations. Right, you could be open-minded, which is obviously the best position to experience anything new from, <laughs> rather than being like, where's my black polonek and yeah. my <laughs> like, cigarette? And who, I was trying to think, who's, who is it that you would want to like turn up on a scooter and take you away? Like, which, what's his name? Belmondo or whatever those like sexy French men from Goddard's movies or would it be Serge Gainsbourg yeah I think it would be a kind of Serge Gainsbourg but I wasn't really interested in French men interested you know Mm. that wasn't my fetish my fetish was like having intellectual conversations with people Mm -hmm. and and like eating croissants yeah I think that's still my fetish (laughs) (laughs) 100% what about can you think of any trips to Europe where you read a great book set in the place that you went to Um, Or if not, at least by someone from that place. No. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't do that when I go on holiday. I really don't read books about the place where I am. Um, I've never done that. And I don't know why. I mean, I'm not like opposed to it. I just have never done it. So I don't have a very good answer to this. I mean, I can think reading Elena Ferrante really made me want to go to Naples and Ischia, although I haven't actually done that yet. So maybe it didn't make me want to do that that much. Do you have a better answer to this question? (laughs) Well, other than to say you should definitely go to Naples. I mean, I bet some enterprising individual over there has probably set up a Ferrante tour or something like that. But I wouldn't do that. No, no, you're not that. I'm a little bit more sophisticated Uh. than that. (laughs) Despite my inability to assimilate into French culture. (laughs) Desperate, desperate too. (laughs) I mean, she's wearing a black polo neck right now, everyone, I should say. So she's still... She's still trying. (laughs) It's working for you, my love. Yeah, I mean, I've done a bunch of that. But again, it it was sort of through aspirations of of having the experience that I wanted to have based on the things that I'd already read, I think, a little bit. So when I first lived in Paris, I was 18 and I was there for a few months studying at a language school and made a massive effort to read as much French as I could to also get my language good because it was all part of my plan to run away to Paris and, you know, be an artist and never see anyone from England ever again, which obviously, you know, I'm quite glad didn't come to fruition, but it was the plan at one point. And I remember I had a couple of really fantastic books of short stories that were done in parallel text and I I really haven't seen much of this and I want to see more of it where the original text is on the right hand page and then the English translations on the left hand page and you can read them alongside and it really it really uh, gives kind of equal weight to the translation and the original text which I think is wonderful as we stop kind of just accepting translations as though they're written by like an anonymous machine right but also it's a great way to get good at a language and see the fascinating actually parallels between different languages and the way that they express themselves but interestingly I think that they were by contemporary French Canadian writers and not um French Mm. European writers so and annoyingly I can't remember what they were called and I couldn't find it on Google I also went for Nana by Emile Zola which I 100% read in translation and I enjoyed walking around Paris with it tucked around my underneath my arm I think it made me feel like the put the pretension that I was having was like coming forth and I actually had a great time wandering around sort of trying to channel her who she's this like 
very successful concubine and sex worker and prize hustler who finds ways to rise through this society that seemingly doesn't want her. I was having a very different experience of life at the time. But I think that because I was in the city that she's in, I felt an affinity with her that was facilitated by, and especially because Paris is so unchanged in so many ways, right? So you can be walking down the boulevard and everyone's wearing jeans, but it doesn't take much imaginative leaping to imagine them in the kind of incredible outfits of the time or whatever. But also, also France again, but you know, France is a really big uh, comic culture and they call them BD, the yeah. bon dessiné. Asterix was the first one I came across because my uncle read them, but there's these ones that are really, this is quite a personal anecdote actually, but they're really seared onto my memory. These ones that I came across when I was about 12 on a French exchange to Marseille and um, my bed was in the dad's of the family I was staying with in his study. And I was nosing around his bookshelves because I finished reading the book I had with me and found this like section that were comics. And I was like, great, I love comics. I was a big fan of the Archie comics at the time, you know, pulled them out the wall and discovered that they were like erotica and they were really intense cartoon erotica, but like kind of literary. So the one that I will never forget is this text called Gullivera and it's like a sexy Gulliver's Travels but <laughs> she's a woman and uh, I will never forget it it's actually I looked it up the other day it's by an Italian guy called Milo Manara but you you know I read it in French I read it in French I mean it was many pictures but yeah she's just this like hot sexy giantess who like has a bunch of kind of crazy sex with these tiny Lilliputians and it was really intense Really intense. So all of our European like book memories are just sex, like, <laughs> sexy books. <laughs> sex, sex, and more sex. Yeah, yeah I guess. That, yeah, how, that is fascinating. I, <laughs> I would love to find a copy of that. Um, yeah, well, I was thinking about what you said about translation. I think this kind of conversation, we have to talk about translation, right? And it's translation has been especially important for me as someone who can't read books from other European countries that are in different languages because my my language is not good enough. And so I consider translation this like amazing window into these other cultures and the literature of these other cultures. And I just think, you know, we did a, a show a while back about translation. I'd love to do another one just because translators are not given enough credit and translation is one of the most magical things in the world isn't it yeah it is it's it's alchemy basically and it, it, especially in times where it, it seems like political isolationism is kind of sweeping the globe like it's it's a really powerful tool um to counter that and yeah it's an incredibly creative act as well i would love to to do another yeah. translation show the other thing i was thinking is it's really interesting that both of our ideas about Europe and sort of exposure to Europe was kind of what people very traditionally think of as Europe, which is France and Spain. 100%. And Italy. So you know? much emphasis and on Western Europe. Yeah. Totally we haven't true. even talked about Eastern Europe yet. And yet that is such an essential part of Europe as well. Yeah. And it's it's also a place that because of the, yeah, the way that books come to you, you know, they come through your education system, which, as you said, like has all of that emphasis on the West. But so it's probably only in my adulthood that I made a more concerted effort to read work from other parts of the European Union. I read a few years ago an incredible book called The Melancholy of Resistance by Laszlo Krasnohokai, who's from Hungary. And it was translated by a wonderful writer, the poet and translator George Surtis, who lives in the UK, but is also Hungarian. And it makes me want to read more literature from Hungary. But also, yeah, it was a real 
Hungarian is a language that very few people speak outside of Hungary and it's notoriously incredibly complex. So thank God that there are people translating work from there otherwise, you know, because you can muddle along through some of the Western European languages if you have a bit and you have a dictionary. But then there are others that are so far from English that are so far from the same. They don't have the same root, root system. I was about to say like that. Yeah, plants, no, but you know what I mean? That's a thing, right? Roots. Yeah. yeah. Root systems. Help us translators. <laughs> help us. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think I, I'm also actually desperate to read work from um, contemporary Greek writers at the moment because It, it, there's so much exciting stuff happening in Greece responding to, you know, very difficult things that are going on politically. And I don't speak Greek at all. And, you know, I, I want a window into that world. Mm. What about you? Is there anywhere that you you want to read more literature from? I've heard amazing things about Olga Tolkarczuk, who is a Polish writer who just won the Nobel Prize. So again, just recommending prize winners. But her book, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, is currently on my bedside table. And I've just heard the most amazing things. So I'd love to read that. I haven't, I don't think I've ever read any Polish, Polish translated literature before. I've really been trying to read more translated literature in the past few years, partially because my schooling was so English language heavy that um yeah i'd love to check it out so if anyone has any recommendations for us yeah hit, hit us up as far as i was thinking i've read quite a lot of stuff from you know like norway finland denmark but it's all been noir <laughs> because things come in trends don't they and things get translated and marketed in trends and i would really love to read some writing from finland or denmark or norway that is nothing to do with the stereotype of that kind of writing that has reached us in the english-speaking world you know like totally yeah yeah it would be it would be really fun basically i want to read it all i will not have time <laughs> what do we do about that i don't know isn't it wonderful though sometimes i sometimes i get overwhelmed by the fact that i'll never read all the books in my lifetime and sometimes i i think it's kind of beautiful yeah i think it is sorry that was such a i mean you said high it with... at four in the morning <laughs> kind of revelation <laughs> you said it with such beautiful earnestness also i mean like i wish you guys could have seen the look on her face she went slightly wistful but it's true but listen like bullshit aside it's true it's really it's an amazing thing to think about actually and to think that If you're if you if you are able to read and if you have access to books, if you, if you can't travel physically in your body um, for whatever myriad reasons you might not be able to, you know, you can travel in your mind. And thank God for that. You know, thank goodness. You told me what you needed and what I end up giving you the hardest thing. As usual, we are back to give you recommendations of some stuff we've done or watched or listened to that isn't reading, basically, but that's inspired us or stimulated us or brought us joy. Carrie, hit me. What was your first thing? Bojack Horseman. Okay. Bojack Horseman. Bojack Horseman. Tell me. I just watched the sixth and final season, and I'm pretty sure that this show is a masterpiece. It's ostensibly a cartoon about a horse in a world that has both people and animals, 
And this horse used to be a, on a sitcom. He was very famous in the 90s. Now he's kind of a washed up alcoholic. There are lots of jokes about Hollywood, which is the place where they live and like animal humor and stuff like that, which is one of the reasons I didn't start watching it until the third or fourth season when so many people had recommended it to me that I was like, OK, I have to start watching this. But oh, my God, it's not really a cartoon about horse people. It is a deep human show about addiction, about death, and first and foremost, how responsible we are for our own mistakes. Interesting. And how much we can fuck up and still be forgiven. And there's a big question mark in the show, and I think it ends with a big question mark in the most beautiful way. And I I think it's amazing. I will watch it. That's the most impassioned recommendation of it I've heard, and I will definitely, definitely (laughs) watch it. I cried. I cried at the end, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Sometimes there's stuff that you know, animation can do that. It's very different, isn't it? And it can lean on itself in a way that's... Yeah, and they've really pushed the limits on the show. There's a, there's an amazing show that has BoJack going... It's in, like, the fourth season, maybe. He goes to this underwater film festival run by fishes, and the, the entire episode is silent because he can't speak. Wow. Um, but it's, like, visually stunning, and it's great. I mean, oh, I would, if, if you want a sort of taster, I would just watch that episode and see what you think and if you like it. Which season should I start from if I don't want to start from the very beginning? Oh, I Six don't. feels like a big commitment. Just, like, start it and see what you think. Okay, okay. Because okay. I, I think the first season is good, too. It's not one of those shows that really gets better in, the, like, the third or fourth season. Okay. I will. I promise you that. Okay, great. My first one is Parasite, which is the best film I've seen in really many many years and also hardly like a hot tips considering it just won three oscars but it's so good see it see it in the cinema don't deny yourself that experience it's the latest film from south korean director bong joon ho and i actually also really loved his previous film snowpiercer which i think had was controversial yeah had had, i very i enjoyed it a lot this is very very different anyway it's it's one of those movies that you see and it stays with you for days i'm still thinking about it and i watched it a couple of weeks ago it's funny, it's moving, it's politically mordant. It's totally, totally uncompromising. The acting is phenomenal. It surprises you, it surprises you again. I wept at the end. I mean, really, like, I had a lot of big feelings. Um, but it, it also, interestingly, really reminded me of the cinema of the resistance in Spain that I studied when I was at university under fascist rule. And it made me think about the way that, like, clowning and vulgarity and satire can be used very effectively within the structure of a family to be a critique it's yeah it's it's also though an excoriating critique of capitalism and showing how it's kind of at once completely vacuous and also totally ubiquitous and monstrous and exploitative but also kind of compelling you know like he's very uh, I don't know it's just extraordinary have you seen it yeah I loved it I maybe didn't love it quite as much as you Mm. um it uh, I thought it was it definitely should have won Best Picture. It was probably the best movie I saw this year, but I I think that it's just a taste thing that it's so controlled. It was so controlled to me that I was so dazzled by it and I thought it was so amazing and it works on so many levels and, you know, it's a, it's really like a masterclass in, in filmmaking, but it didn't, you know, I didn't, it didn't make me cry. It, mm. it felt it le- it it was working at the level of my head and maybe not as much as at my heart. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that. I found it very, I, I, my heart was like there, but it, it just different registers speak to people in different ways. Don't yeah. They? And satire always kind of does that for me. I, I feel like it's not the register that I'm most 
comfortable in. Is and it feels it feels too removed yeah. from humanity of it a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I found I find often the opposite actually, that it like plunges me right into the absurdity of humanity mm. and the fact that like we're yeah there are there are these common experiences that can be exaggerated for satirical effect, but they're so poignant, you know. And the, but I guess also I respond very immediately to symbolism like I don't find symbolism keeps me cerebral it gets to my gut also whereas you know other people it's slightly different anyway it's a fabulous we're all different but yes Parasite (laughs) still recommended by me we're all different also (laughs) recommended by Carrie (laughs) this is going well um what else my love has been getting you excited this is another one that probably doesn't need a recommendation but I loved the docu-series Cheer on Netflix. I watched a few episodes with our mutual friend Anna Wilkins and also really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's so great and it gets better. So keep keep going. Okay, okay. Keep going. Keep going. Um, It's really great. It's a documentary about a competitive cheerleading team at Navarro College in Texas as they prepare for nationals in Daytona, Florida. Daytona is a word that comes up over and over and over in this documentary. So you do not forget where nationals are. But I knew I was going to like this series before I watched it, but what bumps it up into something that I'm recommending to everyone is that it's not just about the amazing physical feats of these cheerleaders, which are truly incredible, like throwing these girls up into the air and being caught by just two people in a spotter. They're doing crazy flips in the air. It's, like it's just full acrobatics. Yeah. yeah. But in the end, it's it's really a look at the lives of the kids who come into this college, many of whom come from devastatingly poor circumstances and and broken homes. And I think you can't help but think about the wider society that's allowing these children to grow up in this way. And I don't think, which I think is, is a trap that sometimes these kinds of documentaries can fall into, is that it offers cheering as the savior of their lives. Um, cheering is obviously something that they've all found that has helped them, but it doesn't excuse the fact that they they have suffered trauma. Yeah, I agree. And listen, it's definitely a show that I wouldn't have expected to appeal to me. And it, I thought it was great, the bits that I saw, for exactly that reason, the human element, you know? And they're great. Some of them are such great, yeah, great Yeah, they're just kids. great characters. Yeah, yeah they, they really, you feel that they got lucky because yeah. they found these amazing children. Yeah. Children, Teen- young teenagers, adults. Young I adults? would say young adults. adults. Yeah. Yeah, they're not children. No. We're just old. (laughs) Um, Uh, What's your next? My next is a podcast called Fake Heiress, which is another one from um, BBC Sounds, actually. And it's just a really, it's quite light, but it's like a great, fun listen. It's about this woman called Anna Delvey. I don't know if you remember the story when it broke. Yeah. So she was this young scammer who managed to con New York society into believing that she was a German heiress when she was actually, I think, originally from Russia and then had grown up a bit in Germany. 100% definitely not an heiress in any capacity, let alone someone who was geared to inherit a $37 million fortune, I think was the idea. Anyway, she managed to wangle hundreds of thousands of dollars out of all sorts of people under the pretense that she was going to set up a kind of members club that was focused around the arts and artists would have studio space and then there would be events and meals and all the rest. Kind of like a Soho house vibe. I mean, also, I'm, I hate members clubs. They make my skin crawl, the idea of them. So the kind of uh, the premise of like the fact that someone could could pull off this huge con with that in mind because of the way that human beings like to be cliquey and clubbable, you know, like I found quite a, 
uh, I don't know, like a heartening uh, moral to the story. Schadenfreude. That's the word that I was <laughs> scurrying around in my handbag for. That's absolutely right. Um, Schadenfreude, indeed. Yeah, and uh, but the way that they, it's a little bit of a rubber necklace, and I guess you know because you know it's a car crash and you you know what's coming. Um, but the way that they do it is great. It's partly dramatized. So they interview some of the people that Delvey ripped off and some of the people who were her friends at the time, and then they imagine a lot of scenes in her life so that's quite fun you know and they, they they acted well and it's um yeah they're making a movie actually apparently about it which again is you know, it's interesting I, but it anyway the story is quite compelling and just also having these imagined or real window into the realities of this completely grotesque world where someone can charter an entire plane without a credit card just because they've been seen with x y and z person and they know they have the confidence to be like of course i'll pay of course my bank will call you um it's just kind of fascinating i mean you know the world is burning and the socialites are still chartering planes what are you gonna do gia has that essay about scamming yes yeah i love how i call her gia so (laughs) like friend she's your buddy um gia tolentino has a great essay about scamming in trick mirror yeah that i was thinking of as you were talking about this which is why why are we so obsessed with scammers right now and why does it seem to be the age of the scam yeah this all really plays into it doesn't it totally and the idea of the kind of millennial woman in particular um, stepping into the role of scammer and the thing is having said all of that there, there are moments where you kind of can't help but admire her ability to do this you know really um, totally yeah it's yeah. good it's, it's a nice lesson I would, I would recommend it what is your next uh, my next recommendation is a little movie called The Godfather oh have you heard of it? I don't think so. <laughs> Didn't it come out a few years ago? It, actually, in the seventies. But oh. yeah, <laughs> no, I, I I know it's really stupid to be recommending this, it's and I'll keep it short. It's not stupid at all. It's a great film. Yeah, but I well, so I w- tried to watch it once when I was I don't know, like eighteen or something, fell asleep, and have avoided it since. I think partially because I thought it was like a bro film. It was the kind of film that boys that I didn't like in college talked about and quoted from and I was like this is not going to be for me and for some reason Eddie and I got talking about it the other day and he's like we should watch The Godfather and so we did and it's great <laughs> it's, a, it's actually it's so a good great. film yeah the acting's amazing like you can tell that it represented a, a turning point in cinematic history and also just I knew so many scenes in the movie without knowing that I knew them because it's been so influential and so many of the quotes like Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes and all of those things so it was it was really fun to watch so all the other women out there who didn't watch The Godfather because they thought it wouldn't be for them try The Godfather <laughs> and now we're on to part two Hot tip. Yeah, yeah I know I know so I yeah I'm so happy about that and then I just have to issue a very tiny correction which is that my little sister Sophie um, who is a listener of this show got very angry at me that I didn't um, give her credit for the fact that I said that I was into crosswords because basically I got into crosswords because she got into crosswords and I would come in and do the crosswords when she wasn't in the room and um, so thank you Sophie for introducing me to crosswords and I'm sorry for filling in your crosswords I love you very much classic sister behavior (laughs) 
What's your last recommendation? My last one is actually another podcast, this time from NPR, um, called Code Switch. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so good. And it's basically, it's about the overlapping themes of race, ethnicity, and culture. And it's put together by a really smart, funny group of journalists who cover a range of things and themes. Um, I'd suggest starting with an episode called What About Your Friends, which they made in tandem with another podcast I really like called Death, Sex and Money, um, which basically gets into the way race and racism shows up in friendships through talking to a bunch of different people. And it's really thoughtful and uh, something that we should all be thinking about anyway. Um, but they put it across really well. And they're just I mean, I'd listen to them talk about anything, to be honest. And I have been binging on the whole latest season. Um, so, yeah, hit them up. Code Switch. NPR. Love Love American uh, national public people. radio. And people. <laughs> Without discernment, just Americans bring them to me. Great. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. That's it. That's it for today. Big thanks to Paula at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. Yeah.